Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, and I'd like to tell you about a great podcast called Philosophical Disquisitions. It's hosted by John Danaher. On the show, he talks to many experts about the interaction of technology and humanity. He has a ton of great episodes, and it's easy to find. It's on Apple Podcasts, or you can find it simply by typing Philosophical Disquisitions into Google. It'll come right up. We really love this podcast, and in fact, we love it so much that we're going to give you a little sample of what you'll find there. The following episode is republished from Philosophical Disquisitions. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so my guest today is Alexis Elder. Alexis is an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Minnesota Duluth. Her research focuses on ethics, emerging technologies, social philosophy, metaphysics, particularly social ontology and the philosophy of mind. She draws on ancient philosophy, primarily Chinese and Greek, in order to think about current problems. She is the author of a number of articles on the philosophy of friendship, and her book Friendship, Robots, and Social Media, False Friends and Second Selves came out in January 2018. Uh, Welcome to the show, Alexis. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So Alexis, I invited you on the show today to talk about friendship and new technologies. Uh, So I'm hoping this is a topic that should be of interest to everyone, since friendships are integral to most of our lives. And it's pretty obvious that new technologies are having a big impact on friendships in the modern day and age. So, you know, thanks to the wonders of the Internet, I can stay in touch with friends who live in different cities and countries with relative ease. I can also form friendships, or at least what seem to me to be friendships, with people that I've never met. At the same time, new technologies can seem to be destructive of friendships, encouraging maybe an impoverished form of communication between friends. And more recently, they offer us the temptation of artificial or robotic friends instead of human ones. So I'm hoping that through our conversation, you might be able to shed some light on the ethics of friendship in the modern age and help us to kind of navigate through the thicket of technologically mediated friendships. Now, we'll focus on two main kind of case studies of friendship in the modern day in our conversation, friendships and social media and the possibility of robotic friends. But I want to start the conversation with some theory and some philosophy. So, you know, throughout your work, you are a big fan of Aristotle's account of friendship. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about Aristotle's theory of friendship and the different kinds of friendships that he identified. Sure. Uh, And yes, I do enjoy uh, mining Aristotle's theory of friendship for uh, insights that can be applicable. One of the things I think is nice about it is just how detailed it is uh, in the Nicomachean Ethics, which is his sort of mature work on on ethics, about 20% is devoted just to this very detailed discussion of friendship. And one of the useful things he does uh, is he points out just how broadly the term friend is described and how many kinds of relationships, sort of subkinds we can find uh, within that category. And for him, the three main distinctions are between friendships of utility, which are friendships based mostly on mutual usefulness to each other, friendships of pleasure, uh, where friends mostly uh, find value in the pleasure they take in each other's company, 
And what gets alternately translated as uh, friendships of virtue or friendships of character, where the thing that you that each friend values about the other is their their good character, essentially. And this is the kind of friendship that he thinks is uh, sort of the best and fullest form of friendship, although comparatively rare in our lives. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, maybe you could just give a slightly more detailed characterization of what the virtue friendship consists in. I mean, I think Aristotle uses the phrase, at least the translated phrase, is something like that, you know, you're sharing a life with somebody else. But what does that actually mean in practice? Yes. Uh, and this is sort of a controversial uh issue even within philosophy of friendships on social media. He has this idea that it's they're this sort of instrumental means of valuing people. We can value people as uh, sources of help or of pleasure in our lives, but we can also just think people are good people. Uh, and so that's one sort of intuitive way to get at the idea of a character friend is just someone you think is a good person. Uh, and who thinks in return that you're a good person. But it seems like you can have this without having a friendship, right? You might admire somebody uh, who you never interact with, and it might turn out that they admire you. So we need to say something more about what's valuable about sort of repeatedly interacting with each other in a meaningful way. And Aristotle's answer to this is something like uh, the value of sharing lives. And I think here uh, we see echoes of this in, in even John Stuart Mill's discussion of the importance of altruism, right? This idea that when you're sort of selfishly focused on your own concerns and what other people can do for you, you miss out on this um, sort of rich arena of human life, where if you care for someone else in the same way as you care for yourself, and Aristotle literally says uh, friends are, virtue friends are our other selves, then their living well is for us analogous to our doing, our, our living and doing well. When you hear that someone you care about, you know, gets their dream job or has some kind of major life success, that doesn't just matter to you as in the sort of means ends, well, you know, they'll be more cheerful or more fun to hang around with. Uh, but, you know, it's it's good news for you in the same way that it would be, uh, to some extent, good news if you were yourself the beneficiary of this good life. Yeah, I mean, I'm put in mind here of the uh, song by Morrissey. I don't know if you're familiar with him, um, <laughs> called We Hate It When Our Friends Become Successful. So, <laughs> so that's like the antithesis of the Aristotelian ideal of friendship yes. here. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, I think we have a clearer sense of what a virtue friendship might be now. But I, I suppose one question I would have is whether a virtue friendship is too idealistic. You mentioned that it's maybe rare. And I think from my own perspective, and maybe this speaks negatively to my own life, is that I'd, I think I'd be hard-pressed to say that any of my friendships really conform to the Aristotelian ideal. Uh, you know, I don't know if I'm really sharing a life with any of my, my close friends. Am I misinterpreting its demands? Is, is it a more realistic ideal? Is it just something that we need to kind of approach or approximate? How should we look at it? Right. Uh, this is sort of controversial uh, within, or it's, a, it's a common criticism of uh, Aristotelian ethics generally. My response, uh, and this might just be the charitable interpretation, but that's good enough for me, is uh, that we can see him as just sketching out the ideal that we then try to approximate. And that seems consistent with his methodology generally. He says, when we're trying to aim at the good life, it helps if we can see the target. Right. So th does this mean then that the role of the virtue friendship in, in a good life, it's it's not essential to a good life? It's something that's desirable and that we should be trying to achieve, but maybe we never quite hit upon it? I think that sounds approximately right. Uh, I, maybe part of the issue here is that the good life, we have to distinguish between sort of the good life that we can hope for in our own lives and the ideal that we aspire to. And there are ways of reading Aristotle that uh, favor either. But much of what he says about friendship involves sort of reflecting on whether it would be preferable uh, to have people in our lives to share good things with. And the idea isn't that, you know, we wither and die if we don't have, uh, you know, a plethora of virtue friends, but that this is one way 
that a good life can go better, and it actually seems like a pretty important one to us. So better to understand how it works so we can make decisions accordingly. All right, another question I want to ask here, and I think it's going to be important when we come back to some of the technological uh, debates later on, is that, you know, um, are these different kinds of friendships that Aristotle identifies, the utility, pleasure, and virtue or character friendship, are they mutually exclusive things? If you're in a virtue friendship with somebody, does that mean that they cannot also be a source of utility or pleasure? Um, no, he's yeah. actually quite clear on that. He says, uh, if people care about each other as people, it's just natural for them to want to be helpful and pleasant to each other. It's just useful for us to be just to, for us to distinguish in our day to day lives between uh, people who are merely useful and pleasant uh, from those we think are good people. Right. And so is then Aristotle saying that utility and pleasure friendships are a bad thing? It, it, should we be discouraging them? Or is it okay to have some people who are just utility friends and never kind of reach the virtue friendship ideal. I think he's quite amenable to uh, utility and pleasure friends. These are, you know, we're social creatures. We live in, in large groups and it seems like a good thing that we get along with our coworkers and can have, you know, pleasant interactions with the people around us. But it's helpful to distinguish in our own minds uh, sort of what's, what it's reasonable to expect of different people and to understand the limitations of uh, different relationships. In fact, in his discussion of different ways that friendships can go badly, he one of the, the primary causes he seems to think is that people are not friends in the spirit they take themselves to be, which frankly still sounds right. I, I, like I, I suppose this will kind of emerge in our later conversation, but is, is there a danger that uh, if we... I suppose it, it, is there a danger that if we um, view people as kind of utility or pleasure friends... Or that if we have too many of those kinds of friendships, we are blocked off from the ideal form of friendship or, you know, it prevents us from realizing the more ideal form of friendship. Right. Um, how many friends should you have? And again, it's, it's, it's 100, 150, it. I think, isn't it? Is that, <laughs> that, that sounds about right. No, actually, interestingly, um, and this is a question that's really sharpened by modern technology where it removes physical and time barriers to maintaining friendships. And when we first started to see these sort of uh, mass social media platforms and people were having hundreds or thousands of friends, there was a lot of curiosity by social scientists. Like, Ooh, what's this going to do to sociality? And it turns out not nearly as much as we thought. Um, however big someone's friend list is, it turns out that most of us interact reciprocally on a regular basis with somewhere between two and 10 individuals, which is kind of consistent with Aristotle's discussion about how many virtue friends you should have. And interestingly, when he talks about uh, how many friends it's reasonable to have, and I, I don't go along with everything he says, but I think it's, it's useful as a starting point. Um, he points out that one of the big problems that we run into is not so much um, managing lots of looser social connections that that can be done sort of without too much personal investment. But but when we try to split ourselves among too many different close friends, our affection can become sort of weak and watered down and we get pulled in different directions when different people who we care about have conflicting interests. And that, he thinks, uh, is where we want to keep an eye on, on things and make sure that we're committing ourselves fully to a few good relationships rather than trying to be a friend to everybody. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's interesting. I think we'll probably come back to that a bit later on. Um, another question that I want to ask about... Aristotle's account is just, you know, how, how much cross-cultural appeal does it have? Is it, is it something that is universal to all cultures, or is it very much a Western ideal of, of friendship? I do think that he was a creature of his time and place. Uh, that doesn't mean that 
some of what he was, I think there's still a lot of points of uh, connection. But it's something that I try to keep in mind in my own work. In many ways, uh, Aristotle is the philosopher who worked on friendship uh, with whom most Western philosophers are most familiar. And so it's sort of the easiest thing to point to when I'm talking about friendship. But I think it's also important to keep an eye on what philosophers and other cultural traditions are saying. So um, much of my own work, I look at uh, Confucius or uh, some of the Taoist discussions of friendship. Uh, but it's also important to remember that there was uh, cross-cultural communication, you know, dating back thousands of years. So much of what Aristotle says about friendship, for example, ends up influencing uh, some me- medieval Arabic work on the same topic. And so the answer is, you know, it's complicated. Yeah, I mean, so I haven't read that much about the philosophy of friendship, but I've read a couple of things. And it does seem to me that, like, Aristotle occupies a overwhelmingly prominent role <laughs> in most discussions of friendship. I mean, is there, have there been any significant alternative theories or developments on the philosophy of friendship since Aristotle? Or is everything just a, a footnote to his work? Uh, so within the Western philosophical tradition, uh, for a few hundred years, there really wasn't as much discussion of friendship, which I think at least partly explains why so many modern Western philosophers reach back to Aristotle. You know, for a while there, much of the interest in friendship was on this sort of uh, impartiality and universality and expanding boundaries and that the emphasis on the sort of particular lived experience that Aristotle specialized in wasn't quite so common. Um, that said, I have noticed um, within the literature there are a number of folks in the sort of broadly Kantian tradition who are really interested in friendship. They tend to focus a little bit more on some of the obligations and demands of friendship within the debate about consequentialism and how well it can accommodate partiality. Friendship has played an important role. And uh, within some discussions of epistemology more recently, uh, questions about how being friends with someone can alter your judgments of evidence have been sort of an interesting discussion I followed. Yeah, I mean, so some of those conversations seem like they would be interesting, although I think, you know, Maybe we we will touch upon some of the issues that are raised there, but um, I suspect we won't be able to follow the philosophical conversations uh, too far. I want to move on, though, to discuss the impact of technology on friendships. And, and let's start by looking at social media. So, you know, this is an obvious observation, but it's increasingly true that we interact with our friends, not just in the physical world, but through digital technologies and you know i guess some (laughs) variation on this was always true and that we didn't need to be physically co-located with our friends at all times we could communicate via telephone or um, letter historically um so it seems to me that there are a lot of criticisms though of of modern forms of digital communication and the impact that they're having on friendship particularly social media forums and the impact that they have on on friendship so the the predominant view seems to be that the kinds of friendships that are possible online are impoverished and superficial in some way. Right. All right. So, yeah, I mean, what are the kinds of objections that people have to online friendships? Oh, I think the the superficiality uh, concern is a common one, although about that I have uh, some worries that at least part of what's going on is people are sort of comparing the highlights reel of face-to-face conversations with the day-to-day interactions on social media. If you think about it, you know, many of our face-to-face interactions are also pretty formulaic and generic and, you know, quick, hi, how are you doing now? Not too bad. How about you? You know, those sorts of exchanges. And I don't think those are uh, not valuable. I just think appreciating um, their value also leaves room for appreciating many of the sort of superficial seeming interactions on social media as well. And we can return to that. Um, But as far as common objections, let's say, um, in addition to the superficiality one, I find uh, many people are sort of taken with the idea that we don't know 
the people with whom we interact online that it allows for too much sort of editing and self present, you know, sort of polishing of one's self presentation. Uh, it doesn't give you a full enough picture of the person. And so you can't really know or trust the people that you interact with online. Uh, I think there are also concerns about whether uh, interacting on social media invites sort of unfriendly comparisons that can tend to bring us down. That might be enough to give us some fodder for conversation. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, from my own perspective, I, I suppose I do interact with people to an extent on platforms like Facebook and, and Twitter, but I, I don't I don't really view them as platforms for friendships at all. You know, mm-hmm. like Twitter to me is largely just a, and I, this is maybe a bad thing to confess, but it's basically just like a self-promotional platform. <laughs> um, it's a way of tweeting links to my work. I don't, I don't really talk right. to people on, on Twitter, and I pretty much don't interact with anybody on Facebook at all anymore. And so, like, I view them as as fora, public fora for broadcasting things that I want to highlight to people, but they're, but they're not really. I don't view them as as ways of maintaining friendships. You know, I use other kinds of digital communications technology for for friendships, like you know, mm-hmm. messaging on WhatsApp or um, email conversations or whatever, or Skype. So we're having right. this conversation via Skype as, as we speak. Um, so like, those are ways of maintaining friendships. And I, I, I suppose like part of the conversation around friendship and social media, I think maybe tends to fixate on certain types of digital communication technology or certain social media platforms and ignores the kind of broader scope of communication methods that are available online. Now, I, I suspect that will kind of feature in our, our conversation in a bit more detail as we go along. But let me try. Yes. And, yeah, let me try and bring it back back around to maybe discussing specific objections. So you know you you have a book on this, and you also wrote a paper on it a number of years ago. So one of the objections that you raise or discuss is um, kind of what I was getting at there with Twitter is that I view it as a, as a public forum for mm-hmm. broadcasting signals about myself. And so right. some people think that this kind of publicity, the fact that we're sending information to lots of people at once, it's a it means that we can't really have you know proper excellent Aristotelian friendships online. So maybe you could talk about that objection in a bit more detail and how you respond to it. Sure. So the one of the um, there are a number of different ways that uh, different social media users can interact with the same platform. And I think uh, many of the examples you've given, you know, some people are perfectly happy to use uh, a number of different social media platforms, primarily for broadcasting news and uh, less for face to face interactions, um, or less for uh, interpersonal interactions. And I think that's fine. I don't. Uh, I don't intend to criticize people who who use it in that way. But uh, one of the things I'm interested in doing is exploring what happens when people don't sort of restrict themselves in that way. And it does seem that for many people, these kinds of interpersonal exchanges are valuable and important. That this is one way that people uh, keep up with old friends or make new friends uh, on platforms like uh, like Twitter or like uh, Facebook. I was uh, just amused to learn that. Uh, couple of friends who co-founded a, the website The Toast uh, met each other in the comments forum uh, or the, the comment section of a, a popular uh, blog. So, you know, I think there's there's room for different people to interact with the same platform in different ways. So I'm, I'm interested in exploring the, the space of possibilities there. Right. So, I mean, even though it is kind of a public broadcast platform, to some extent, um, that's, that's one aspect of it. it. It can be kind of a fertile breeding ground for other kinds of friendships or interactions. And I actually, you know, that's true of some of the interactions that I've had on, let's say, Twitter, which, as I mentioned, I, I use largely for broadcasting the work that I do. I have um, kind of identified people on there that I've 
or developed more meaningful relationships with or uh, friendships with uh, because they saw something that I wrote and they responded to it and we developed a conversation around that or something like that. So, you know, it's possible to right. develop richer forms of friendship from this initially public, okay, a more private form of friendship from this initially public platform. Right. And that's that's an analogy I've, I've developed before is if you think about something like a cocktail party or some kind of, you know, sort of social mixer where nobody knows each other that well, but there are all these conversations going on and you just sort of drift around and, uh, you know, join them as you see fit. That's not sufficient for friendship all on its own, but it can be a useful way to, uh, you know, connect with people and see how well you click with them and whether these look like friendships or relationships that you're interested in building on. And if we don't have problems with the idea that, you know, friendships can develop in these kinds of face-to-face contexts, uh, then barring some of the other concerns I alluded to earlier about uh, trustworthiness, which we can come back to, uh, I think that we can at least occasionally use uh, social media platforms in the same way. So you, you start off with something that's fairly generic broadcast news, but then conversation and start to develop around that and hey you've got yourself and your friend yeah and i think the kind of analogy with the offline world is a useful and important one here that yeah you know we have lots of superficial and shallow exchanges in dinner parties or public events but they can develop or blossom into something deeper and more meaningful uh, from there and that's actually something i found interesting even within established interpersonal relationships so um stefana broadbent who's a, a anthropologist who focuses on uh, digital uh, interactions notes that many of the exchanges even between you know sort of spouses or family members or close friends many of them look quite superficial you know just texting hey just got out of work or you know sort of um, checking in to see how you're doing but she thinks these seemingly superficial interactions themselves are actually quite socially important because they help us to stay connected uh, and they help us to just share in our daily lives. Yeah, no, I think that's also a good point as well. And I think that's something that certainly resonates with me. And, and I imagine it would resonate with many other people. I mean, like, what about another kind of version of this objection, which is that, okay, you know, it might be true to say that we can develop deeper friendships from initially superficial exchanges. And maybe those kinds of exchanges are also an important part of the glue that holds together deeper friendships. But, you know, is, is there a problem with the platforms themselves and that they incentivize or direct us towards the shallower, more superficial exchanges? I mean, this, so this is a common critique of platforms like Facebook or Instagram is that they, right. they encourage a kind they, of narcissism or self-congratulation and are not right. <laughs> a meaningful yep. exchange. Yeah. Uh, again, I worry that some of that sells short just how much self-promotion takes place in face-to-face exchanges. Uh, and how much um, sort of posturing occurs just in in normal uh, day-to-day interactions. And I also, but I also think there's room for a little bit of uh, sort of super, seemingly superficial, let's call it the realm of small talk, right? That we have conversations where we exchange pleasantries and talk about nice things that happened and don't sort of, you know, bear our deepest, darkest secrets to each other initially. But that gives us a chance to get a better sense of each other. And um, I think... There are still uh, important guidelines for people to follow about not just staying in the realm of the superficial, but I don't think these are unique to social media. I think these are just important for human uh, interactions generally. That said, there's some interesting data that suggests that the ways that individual users uh, relate on social media can either feed into this sort of culture of superficiality and some attendant um, mental health concerns and ways that they can resist it. So, for example, 
people who engage with platforms like Facebook or, or Twitter primarily as passive users and just sort of scroll through and see everybody else's self-promotion gradually get more depressed and more anxious. And the thought is there's a pretty straightforward mechanism by which when you know you compare your daily life to the highlights that someone else is sharing, it's easy to sort of run yourself down gradually over time. Uh, but for people who interact actively on these platforms, who use this as a means of keeping up with their friends, the same effect is not observed, um, particularly when interactions are one part of a, a rich life. So if you interact with people for you know many hours every day, the comparison effect seems to grow. But if it's just sort of worked throughout the fabric of your life, you don't get the same kind of um, depressing effect. Yeah, and actually that resonates with me too, because I'm, I'm largely passive user of something like Facebook. And you know, the more I scroll through people's highlight reels, the more depressed I get about my own life. So, that, <laughs> yeah, I, I noticed that myself when I read that. I was like, oh, that makes sense of <laughs> a lot of my day. Uh, and when I started sort of pushing myself to be more active and you know, everything from the, the like button to comments to just sort of sharing more of my own content, it, I could feel the difference. Yeah, very, so I mean, that's something I'll need to kind of take over or bring over into my own life and maybe be a little bit more active or else just abandon the forum completely. It, it might not be the, the, the forum for everyone. And, and I also think there's a, there's a little bit of a call here for more courage on the part of users uh, to share things that aren't always you know, the best and brightest. And that doesn't mean, again, bearing your soul, but room for using these platforms to honestly discuss struggles. And I don't think it'll be easy. I don't know that the platform encourages it or uh, necessarily, but it can also be hard to you know, share your less than favorite parts of your life with people face to face. So courage is a virtue. Yeah, I mean, so I actually, this is something I have thought about a little bit is that, you know, academic Twitter, which is a thing that people talk about, although Mm -hmm. it's obviously, there isn't really one single academic Twitter. I imagine there are like many different sub communities of academics on Twitter. Like I, I do see a slightly more kind of supportive network there and people who are willing to talk about their failures and support people through their failures. At least there's, you know, there's some of that kind of signaling that, you know, well, I didn't, Mm -hmm. I didn't get tenure today and then people say well you know it's not that it's not that bad you should uh, buck up and we've all been through circumstances like this or people talk about failures in publication or getting grants so like i've seen some of that willingness to share failures on on twitter it, within that particular sub community on twitter anyway which seems mm-hmm. like a more maybe positive use that goes against the stereotype or the grain right there. right and it can take it can take some real you know conscious uh, effort to get that going but but once once you have this culture, I think it, it can be, um, you know, I, I don't think the need for being a, a, a virtuous person sort of drops away, but it, it can create an environment where uh, some real mutual support is possible. And I think that's consistent with some evidence that uh, things like healthcare support forums for people struggling with, with various kinds of, of illness and health challenges can turn out to be very beneficial. Okay. So, I mean, I, like, I probably agree with most of what you've said so far, but I do think there is a big objection to kind of online friendships, particularly friendships that are mediated through social media platforms, um, which is that they are in some sense contaminated by the fact that these platforms are used by commercial enterprises to spy on you, to push ads towards you. Um, and this also, you know, has bad consequences for society. You know, we become increasingly polarized. There's a lack of civility maybe on online forums. And, th- you know, this is all being done to kind of enrich the coffers of Mark Zuckerberg or uh, other owners of these platforms. So that there's something, yeah, I, I suppose contamination is the term I would use. There's something that is, this, the friendships, even if you could develop a, an excellent friendship online, it mm-hmm. is contaminated by this underlying commercialization and surveillance. 
Right. What, what do you have to say to that? So this is a, a concern that for me has become much more pointed in recent years. When I started thinking about this, um, I think there was uh, an overall sense that there was a, a clearer distinction between uh, sort of private surveillance for marketing purposes and surveillance by governments or that had these sorts of political implications that recent events have shown is not always uh, so clear a distinction. So I think these are real problems. Uh, and I think these have real moral implications for uh, the people who develop and uh, support these platforms. So I think, you know, Mark Zuckerberg needs to do some thinking about the ethics of exploiting uh, people's friendships and interpersonal interactions to enrich himself. Where I want to be a little bit more cautious, I think, is questions about how this affects the quality of individual relationship. And to do that, I think, again, recent events have, have made it clear that um, many people probably, including myself, need to be careful about this because it seems unfriendly of me to, you know, encourage my friends to share details of their lives uh, in ways that might make them vulnerable to exploitation by various entities who do not have their best interests in mind. Uh, that said, I think in principle, the idea that people can interact in these sort of widespread uh, social forums doesn't necessarily bring with it some of the risks that, that we see playing out in the actual world. And I think there's space here for more conscientious and thoughtful uh, social media platform development, which has been the sort of the thread that I've been most interested in, in my own research is what are the possibilities and how can we use that? I guess I'm a little bit of an Aristotelian here, right? What, what are the ideals we can aim at and how can we use that to shape our decision making? Yeah, I mean, so would you go so far as to say that we have a duty maybe not to develop friendships on a platform like Facebook or Twitter or you know, pick your your poison, like whichever one you you dislike right, the right. most. But <laughs> no, this is. I mean, it's a it's a hard question. Um, I mean, for, for what it's worth, I still do use Facebook, but I have some qualms about it, so I I don't have a settled answer. I think one of the big problems that we face is that uh, you know buy in is just a, a a challenge. It's one of the things that makes it really hard for people to leave Facebook is that that's the place you go to to connect with many of your friends, and so to make a transition to a platform is no longer an individual decision, right? It's something you, you have to convince all the people you actually want to keep in touch with to also switch over. Right. And, but this also goes, I suppose, to a deeper part of the ethics of friendship, which is like, and maybe this kind of gets into the kind of utilitarian questions about partiality and impartiality. You know, two people could be having a very nice friendship on Facebook, but their use of the forum might be contributing to a culture that is very negative or poisonous in some way. I mean, so... It, it, when do you have a duty not to pursue a friendship in a, the interests of the public or right. more generally? Is that ever a possibility? And this sounds like, um, I'm, I'm guessing from, from the question that we're thinking not just about things like, um, is Facebook mining your personal data to use in you know, crafting political campaigns, but things like, um, are you contributing to a particular toxic culture in a in a some of your interactions. Yeah, that, yeah, right? yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that um, that I think is again a real problem uh, that can be fruitfully uh, informed by some of what Aristotle has to say about the importance of good character for good friendships. And this is one of the more controversial things he says is that uh, if you're going to have a really good friendship, then the people in it need to really be good people. And it's tough to do that in an online environment where you know the sort of general social expectation is that if someone sends you a friend invite, and especially if it's somebody you know in person, that you'll accept the invitation. But I think being more selective in our social connections can actually be beneficial. And being more willing, um, at, not necessarily to engage in something like uh, call-out culture, which has its own problems, uh, but being willing to, for example, correct each other when someone shares a fake news story. Um, 
is something that I think is, it's important for us to practice. It takes some courage to be able to say, hey, <laughs> that's not true. Uh, here's a link that says it's not right. But when you have a community that's willing to engage in those practices, that can help us to resist some of the the more toxic elements of extreme communities online. Okay. Um, so what about the idea of, you know, deception in online friendships? Um, I think this is like a part of me who thinks that this is a dated concern to some extent, but I guess it's, it's still true in certain forums. But, you know, so Facebook has like a real name policy. So you're supposed to be your real self on there. But there's lots of other online fora that, in which you don't have to, you know, st- say exactly who you you are or you can conceal certain information about yourself in your interactions with other people is that something that should be troubling for uh, somebody who's trying to develop a real friendship online how should we think about deception in online friendships right right i agree that the concerns have shifted um and that the as the norms have changed from the assumption that most people are using pseudonyms uh, or using anonymous platforms to google facebook you know sort of having these real name policies i think one version of the concern still remains, which is just that it's a lot easier, uh, so goes the objection, to edit your online presence uh, in such a way that you can cultivate trust uh, relative to face-to-face interactions where uh, the thought seems to go. You could sort of catch people when they slip up or lie. And my response to that is that we tend to have a great deal more faith in our ability to catch uh, lies and deception face-to-face than the data would seem to suggest. So, uh, you know, I'm a child of the 80s. I grew up and, you know, by the time I started using the the Internet in the 90s and 2000s, there was a lot of concern about, you know, online uh, predation of teens and youth. And yet when we look at the data, it turns out um, most predators of of this sort are close friends and family members that adults in the family know face to face and, you know, very well. So I suppose, again, this is a cautionary tale. It's not to say that deception can't occur online, but we should be careful not to overinflate our uh, perceptions of our own abilities to judge character face to face. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm I'm reminded of another song here, which is, you know, the classic Beatles song, All the Lonely People, where, you know, Eleanor Rigby puts on the face that she keeps in the jar by a door. So that's like... um, Exactly. We're, we're always kind of masking aspects of ourselves in our offline interactions as well. And mm-hmm. yeah, we might overestimate our ability to actually tell when somebody is putting on a good face. In fact, in fact this is not uncommon because as many times when I'm, you know, I realize that friends of mine are, are in a particular emotional state that I was just completely incapable of recognizing through their outward right. behavior. Right, right. Uh, and I think... This doesn't mean, uh, you know, trust everyone. It means be be mindful of our own limitations. Uh, but I don't think it's a special problem for online interactions. And in fact, to some extent, the and this is depends on the platform. So something like Snapchat, where most of our uh, most of our um, interactions are ephemeral, is you know different than something like Facebook that leaves a digital paper trail. But there's a little bit more of a sense that you can look, uh, you know, take a step back and and look at the overall story told by a person's contributions in a way that's not possible face-to-face, where it's a little bit easier to say one thing one day and a different thing the next day and just trust that other people will doubt their own memories rather than what you've just said. I mean, kind of related to this, and this might be two separate questions, so let me see if I can formulate the thought in my mind. I think I've come across an argument by somebody, I can't remember their name right now, which claims that you know, deception or a certain amount of deception can actually be a good thing for friendships and can actually maybe facilitate or enable Aristotelian-style virtue friendships. So I think the reasoning was along the following lines, which is that sometimes in the offline world, we are 
prevented from entering into friendships with people due to stereotypes or prejudices we have mm-hmm. towards a particular class or group of individuals. And in the online world where maybe some of those details or that information is masked or hidden from us, we can open up the possibility of a kind of friendship that just wouldn't be available to us offline. I mean, do you you think there's any merit to that kind of thinking? I suppose I'd be reluctant to call that deception, but it does seem that giving individuals more control over how they contribute to a conversation can have uh, pretty significant benefits. So uh, if somebody is able to, you know, mask their gender or their race and thereby avoid some of the cultural stereotypes that are associated with that or some of the implicit biases that that would tend to trigger, then that seems like that's a good thing if it helps them to to be heard. Right. Although, I mean, maybe this would then go back to your earlier point, but, you know, good people, it has to be good people in the friendship. So, like, if if it turns out that the other person is a racist or a sexist of some kind, then it's... um, They they haven't won themselves a very valuable friendship, right? Yeah, like, that's that's a deeper problem. I had some other thought there, which is now gone from my mind. Okay, it's gone. Sorry. We can come back to it if you remember it. If I remember it, yeah. So let me just kind of bring back one one final point, is that, all right, maybe we can have richer forms of interaction online and there it's not necessarily all doom and gloom when it comes to online friendships there's actually maybe valuable aspects to online communication but is there any truth to the claim that at the end of the day that you have to have some kind of physical interaction with somebody in order to have a a truly uh, excellent friendship with them that some kind of physical co-location at some point in time is eventually needed i'm reluctant to say that for for every friendship i mean the the data tends to suggest that these days uh, most online friendships also have an online component. So an offline component. Yeah, so that most of our friendships these days are, are blended. Uh, most of us, there's a significant degree of overlap between the people we know face-to-face and the people we know online. So it's it's less, I think, like the early days of the internet when most of our online connections were folks we met on you know common interest forums who might live somewhere completely different and you know meeting up was this sort of big special occasion. Um, it certainly might be true for, for some relationships, but I think I'm open to the possibility that if what we value about friends is, you know, caring about each other and sort of sharing meaningful thoughts and experiences, that those things are all available to us online. And so I don't think there's an in-principle reason to reject purely online friendships uh, relative to offline ones. I, I mean, I suppose it all comes back to what the ideal of sharing a life with somebody really means. Can you share a life with somebody through purely kind of intellectualized discourse or conversation uh, or is there any point in time when you need to have shared physical activity or something like that right right and you know as the uh, nerdy intellectual type i suppose i'm I'm drawn to the idea that uh, intellectual sharing is 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 real sharing and valuable um that might not be true for everybody, but I think I'm at least open to that possibility. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a line in, in one of your articles, and maybe it, it originates in Aristotle, with, you know, sharing a life in the, the cattle sense versus the human yes. sense. That, that's one of yep, the ideas there, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's Aristotle. And that was at a time when, and the, the literature shifted to some degree, but there was it was very common for a little while for folks who worked in philosophy of technology and emerging ethics to say Aristotle says the best friends need to live together uh, and you can't do that if they're if you're separated by a screen so no friendship and I said well let's go back and look at what he actually says which is sharing lives is about this sort of sharing thoughts and conversations and the things that we find meaningful and important in life and not just grazing in the same field like cattle and you know if you've ever had a roommate that you didn't really click with I think you, you can sort of intuitively recognize the distinction it's it's not enough to share space and it's not necessary either. You know, having for some kinds of relationships, maybe it would be useful to 
to cohabitate. You know, if you're raising a child, that seems like a difficult thing to do remotely. Although some folks are doing some interesting uh, research on parenting by Skype when folks um, have to work overseas and keep up with their children online. Uh, but yeah, that's a different yeah. topic. Yeah, no, so I mean, I think that's other kinds of relationships, you know, some kind of physical collocation might be necessary, but a friendship, maybe not, at least not for everyone. I mean, right. One thought that did strike me, though, is that like for certain kinds of, let's say, utility friendships, physical collocation might be essential. So, you know, sure. um, the friend that I play tennis with every week, you know, we need, need some kind of physical collocation for that. And I'm even open to the idea that for some people, if what's meaningful and valuable in their lives necessarily requires collocation, and I think athletics can be a great example of this, then for those people, online friendships just might not be that rewarding. But if the things that matter to you are these highly cerebral and intellectual things anyway, then, um, or, you know, otherwise, maybe artistic endeavors, you know, any, anything that turns out to be shareable in these, uh, you know, digitally mediated environments, then I don't see an in-principle reason to rule them out. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's, it's kind of like a different strokes for different folks kind of argument here that, you know, some people it's going to be important and for other people it, it's not going to be important. Exactly. And I'm just resisting the, the appeal to Aristotle to say there's something in principle um, missing in uh, online communications. Yeah, no, that seems, seems fair enough. Let's move on, though, to discuss robots. Okay, yes. so you know, we've, we've been talking about humans that are mediating their relationships through technology. What about the idea of just you know, having a relationship with the technology itself, with some mm -hmm. artificial intelligence or some, some robot? Now, I guess there's a context to this conversation, which is that there are already uses of social robots as friends or companions for certain groups of people. Actually, yes. maybe, maybe more widespread now with things like Alexa or you know, Google Assistant that people are having kinds of relationships with. Um, mm -hmm. AI assistance, but but let's stick to the other kind of groups of people like autistic children and elderly people. There's the, um, a big research drive and commercial interest in developing social robots as companions for them. Um, yes. Why is this happening, and like what's some of the what are some of the experimental findings around this? I know you've written about this a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think there there are a few uh, issues involved here. So for geriatric populations where loneliness is a recognized concern, and it's a it's a concern that has physiological consequences, right? When people feel lonely and isolated, uh, they're at higher risk for a number of health problems. And uh, roboticists have, and I think this is this is common uh, in a number of sort of technological applications. They're, when they're like, oh, we can help. We just need to design something for it. Uh, and I think there's there's a helpful impulse in many tech communities uh, that can can fuel an interest. And then where where I see myself coming in as a philosopher is going, well, let's let's make sure that we've correctly diagnosed the problem before we uh, sort of rush in with the cure. And part of what's going on there is when we're dealing with uh, with geriatric populations, a high percentage of which uh, are eventually vulnerable to cognitive impairments. And when we're dealing with children on the autism spectrum, we need to be mindful of sort of potential for confusion and make sure that we don't cause people to think that they have friends or to misunderstand the nature of their relationship with these robots. Right. So, but for the autistic children, let's say, for example, I mean, there some of the, the uses of social robots with autistic children is driven by the desire to improve their social skills, to maybe open them up to friendships. Uh, yes. So could you maybe talk about some of the, some of the work that's being done on that idea and, and why 
people think sure. this is a good idea? Sure. So just kind of a brief sketch. Uh, it seems that, and you know, this this is empirical, comes with lots of exceptions. Um, so you know, to folks on the autism spectrum or parents with uh, children who fit that description, uh, this might not fit your child, and that's totally normal. Um, but for for many such children, um, a variety of technologies seem highly appealing, and in fact, many children find it easier to engage in protosocial behaviors with robots than with human beings. Uh, this is a robust enough phenomenon that the roboticists are sort of scratching their heads and kicking around different explanations for it. So some folks have proposed um, it might be because uh, robots are give a little bit of a cleaner social signal, right? There's less subtlety and um, sort of confusing or conflicting signals with a, a simple robot than with a human face. Uh, but the thought has been that if one of the things that holds uh, children on the autism spectrum back is this sort of lack of social skills uh, that if we can help them to practice with things like reading facial expressions or following eye movements or engaging in turn-taking, that they can end up being better positioned to interact in the social world. And so there's been uh, some robust collaboration between therapists and roboticists to develop robots that are intended to, to help in these ways. Right. And there was a journalist from the New York Times, as far as I remember, a few years ago, wrote an an article, I think it may have subsequently have been turned into a book about her autistic son and his relationship with um, the Siri operating system that you yes. know, there was a lot of, she saw a lot of benefits to it. And yes. par partly, I mean, based on the article, the op-ed that she wrote, it was partly because it eased some of her burden or emotional burden in, in dealing with him. But I mean, there was right. also the idea that it, it facilitated or enabled a form of, of interaction for him that maybe wouldn't otherwise have been available to Right, or would have been harder to do consistently. I mean, for, for many skills, building skills takes practice, and the more uh, we can encourage these children to practice, the, the easier they're going to, or the, the more quickly they're going to pick up on them. So if it's difficult to motivate a child who's facing social, social struggles anyway, then finding something that they find appealing, and um, part of this mother's experience was that her son just really liked talking with Siri. That meant he talked more, and talking more helped, uh, particularly to a, a vocal recognition system that was kind of nitpicky about pronunciation, meant he started speaking more clearly. And that was just a, a concrete benefit of practice. So it, like, I know the article was titled To Siri with Love, I think. that was. Mm -hmm. I mean, that might have been the name of the book afterwards. I didn't read the book, so I don't know what the, the book consists of. Uh, I, like, I mean, I can see lots of maybe potential benefits to the use of, of social robots for uh, people on the autism spectrum. I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more iffy about their use amongst elderly populations, <laughs> partly because I think it's maybe driven by less noble motives. Uh, so I think it's, it's maybe largely driven by the idea that, well, we don't want to look after them. Right, right. And this is, this is part of the, the ongoing discussion about the ethics of social robots in, in nursing homes, is we know we're facing uh, a staffing crisis, right? Uh, particularly in countries like Japan, where the majority of the population is elderly and aging, and there just aren't uh, many native-born citizens willing to sort of step in and care for them. That means we need to explore alternative possibilities. Does that mean these are the best possible ones? Well, no, but, you know, we can't suddenly shift the population. That raises, that, that actually brings uh, in questions about immigration, uh, which are themselves contested. Japan has a, a fairly strict immigration policy, and so maybe it's not surprising that there's a lot of exploration of robotic possibilities in consequence. But we're, we're intervening with technological means on an already messy and complicated human problem, one of which just is that the elderly tend to be quite cut off, uh, and it's hard to find people to, to work with them. And that might itself already be a huge ethical problem.
Yeah, I mean, like, uh, you know, to to maybe moderate my initial comment, it, it, I'm not saying that it's always driven by ignoble motives. It's that, uh, yeah, it's, it's complicated. I mean, I think maybe in an ideal world, elderly people wouldn't be isolated from their families or from human care and mm-hmm. concern, but we don't live in that ideal world. And there are all sorts of reasons, some of them that are you know very valid and understandable reasons why, you know, children don't want to look after their parents or are unable to look after their parents full time because they have other obligations and other concerns. So, you know, I'm not, right. I'm not saying it's always driven by ignoble motives, but I suppose I just, I, I am intuitively a little bit more iffy about the merits of social robots for elderly populations vis-a-vis right. people on the autism spectrum disorder. Right. But that's kind um, of, I think, yeah. I think with the, with the autism spectrum disorder, there's a, there's at least a, a clear goal that we're shooting at. If we can use robot therapies not to substitute for human interaction, but as a stepping stone to human interaction, then that looks like everything's sort of ethically above board. And we have a clear idea of what we're aiming at and what to be wary of. Whereas with caring for the elderly, things are messier and it's a little bit harder to see what to do, which in turn means we, we can be more worried about slippage of interest and ethical problems. Right. I mean, that's a kind of, there's a larger question here around the ethics of it, but let's kind of zone back in on friendship itself. Now you... Mm-hmm. So one of the things I like about the stuff you've written on this is that you don't really, really push a very strong view. So most of the stuff that I've read on this topic has been negative insofar mm-hmm. as it's like that this is a, there's lots of bad things about social robots and we should uh, just be very, very cautious. Right. Uh, yeah, you think we should probably be cautious as well, but do you think there's more, there's more room to be open to the idea of social robots as well? Right. Never, nevertheless, so you do have an argument about why we should be a little bit cautious about social robots. And you base this argument on an analogy that I think, again, Aristotle drew between counterfeit currency and fake friends. So mm-hmm. could, could you maybe explain that analogy and then the kind of argument that you derive from it? Sure. And some of this plays into, uh, you're right to note, I'm, I'm occupying a, a sort of middle ground in uh, philosophy of technology. And if I could just take a, a moment to um, unpack that. I think what typically tends to play out uh, in sort of development of new technologies is you have a whole bunch of engineers who discover a problem and get really excited about working out a solution to it. This, this is my experience with engineers is they, they love to be helpful and they want to um, figure out how to solve a problem. But getting clear on what that problem is and whether the, the cure is worse than the disease is not always something they're so great at. And so many of the sort of early commenters on new technologies find themselves in this position of like, you know, waving their hands going, no, 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 careful, slow down. Uh, And then I sort of step in and moderate the discussion and go, okay, well, you know, yes, those are legitimate concerns, um, but the intentions were good. How can we uh, thoughtfully integrate those concerns in a way that still lets us realize what benefits there are to be had? So that's that's the preamble. Yeah, and I think your sociological diagnosis of what goes on is is pretty much spot on. So that then that leaves room for okay, well, how do we how do we proceed? And here I, I reference back to Aristotle. Uh, part of my bigger project, I think, of trying to situate these concerns about social technologies in broader discussions about friendship and how to be a good friend. And he he has this comment that he makes, uh, sort of in passing, where he's talking about. Um, deception and friendship. And he says that people who uh, deceive others about the nature of their friendship, uh, so for example, pretending to be somebody's virtue friend when they're really just 
um, you know, in it for the utility or the pleasure, uh, do something analogous to counterfeiting uh, coins or circulating false currency, uh, except they do it with something more valuable. And so they do something deeply ethically wrong, and we ought to blame them for it. Sorry, me, and this, yes, go ahead. Sorry, um, I don't want to interrupt. Oh, I was just going to say that that struck me as sort of straightforwardly analogous to what we're facing with social robots, that if we find it useful to, you know, make the elderly feel less lonely or we find it pleasant or reassuring, that is not sufficient if what we're doing is misleading them into thinking they have a sort of genuine companions who care about them and their well-being, and it's really just a, a means-ends relationship for us. Yeah, I suppose just one, one initial question I have is, like, how do we how do we know if somebody's a, a not a real friend? I mean, like, this, it strikes me that it could be comes, very difficult to work that out. But yeah. Right. And this comes back to, I think, earlier discussions about discussions in friendship and you know, in, in sort of day-to-day life, often we can't tell. But I think that's sort of tangential to Aristotle's point, which just is when it occurs, something bad has occurred. And trying to, you know, reassure yourself, well, you know, but I'm, I'm helping them or, you know, they're, they're enjoying it is not sort of getting at the heart of the problem. And so I want to forestall those kinds of justifications on the parts of folks designing these social robots. The fact that Somebody uh, who is, you know, lonely and isolated is temporarily placated by uh, a, a robot companion doesn't mean we've addressed the real issue that they care about or that we would care about in their position. And we need to be mindful of that. Okay. I mean, so my other question then that goes towards my interpretation of your argument, which was sure. that, so so when I read it, um, you kind of drew this analogy between friendships as a kind of social system and uh, an economy as a social system. So an economy is disturbed by the presence of a counterfeit currency. It it undermines the smooth functioning of that economy. It leads to kind of mistrust. It might slow down the engines of, of commerce and economic growth and so forth. It, so it has this, again, you know, a contaminating effect on the economic system. Right. So you then argue that friendships are themselves social systems, or kinds of social systems, and that they are undermined in a similar way by the presence of fake friends. So, yes. you know, have I got that argument correct? And then also, what does it mean to say that a friendship is a social system? What do you understand by that? So let me see if I can break that down a little bit. Uh, so one of the things that I think um, that, that I, I try to pull out in this analogy between false coins and, um, and false friends is the value of money is not purely a matter of appearances, right? It's, it's about the relationship in which that token stands to this uh, interpersonal, interconnected system. Right. You can have a, a forgery that's very difficult for your average user to uh, to discern, and it still has this kind of harmful effect. And I think likewise for friendship, it's not the question is not will someone else uh, accept it as friendship, but does it stand in the right kind of relationship to the social system? So that's that's exactly right. It was a means of highlighting this appearance reality distinction. Uh, that said, I do think there are some important differences between economies and friendships, uh, but also some important similarities, right? What what makes something uh, a kind of uh, a social entity in the sense in which I'm interested in has to do with different people being um, parts of a, a greater whole, right? And working together uh, to achieve things that might not be possible individually. And I think you get some of that in economies as well as in friendships. But economies are much more formal, right? So somebody like uh, John Searle has this discussion of the social ontology of money that makes it depend on these kinds of very clear constitutive rules for what counts as a particular kind of currency. Uh, and I don't think you get anything like that in friendship, right? There, there are no rules for 
uh, or you know clear hard and fast distinctions for what counts as what kind of friend we get these these approximations and these ideals but the real world is messy and complicated and uh, we have to navigate in a very different way um so one thing that i think is important to friendship that is disanalogous to money is just how much the particular matters and the sort of uh depth and um, richness of the emotional interconnection right you're you're just not a very good friend if you don't and this again harkens back to some of our earlier discussion um if you can't you know feel good uh when things go well for your friends or you know feel sad or um distressed when when they're threatened or harmed. And I don't think you get anything like that uh, with currency. And in fact, you might think part of what money is about is this kind of fungibility and interchangeability and facilitating that in ways that are antithetical to friendship. Yeah, I mean, so what you've said there kind of actually maybe helps your argument. So like one of the, the issues I had with the counterfeit or currency analogy was that it, like in a sense, and I appreciate this, uh, not everyone is fully on board with this view of money, but in a sense, money is a kind of illusion anyway. It's it's a collective illusion. It's we've we've agreed to treat certain tokens as having value, and we can exchange them, and they can enable the smooth functioning of the economy. And so, there's something kind of fake and illusory about it in the first place. In a way that 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 isn't quite true of friendship, because friendship is something that emerges more organically from a certain a set of interactions between people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think. I think it's easier for a... Well, I think it's, it's more dangerous for a friendship to be undermined by the presence of a fake friend than it is for an economy to be undermined by a counterfeit currency in the simple sense that, you know, the economy could switch over to the fake currency if it wanted to or if there was a sufficient right. buy-in or agreement to it, whereas the same thing mightn't be true in the case of a of a friendship as a social system. So I think that actually helps and benefits your argument. The, the disanalogy right. strengthens the claim. No, I like that, right, that... that Current currency is, in a certain sense, just it just functions by fiat. If enough people say this is what counts, then that's true. Whereas it looks like even if people take themselves to be friends, if they don't have the right kinds of reciprocal interactions and emotional states, uh, they're just wrong about it. I'm thinking here of you know things like uh, Mean Girls, right, or <laughs> the phenomenon of frenemies, where you can think of people who, who declare themselves to be best friends and you watch their interactions and you're like, nope, you're just wrong. Yeah, although, I mean, this kind of links back to an earlier point, which is that I think that in many cases in our relationships, we have to live with some kind of ambiguity about the status mm-hmm. of other people that we don't, maybe we're never fully certain about their, whether they are true friends or not. There's always things that can happen that lead us to doubt or question it. So a, a friendship is something that is always in an uncertain or developing state. Mm-hmm. Is that something you would agree with or disagree with? <sighs> I mean, I'm, I'm willing to embrace fallibility on a lot of things. So uh, I suppose I'd go along with that for friendship as well. But I think the same could be said of currency. So I'm not sure that that necessarily is, is going to be a disanalogy. Yeah, no, that's, that's fair enough. Yeah. Um, but this kind of goes to a deeper point, like, which, which we haven't really made the argument for this yet. And this is something that I'm interested in, is that the assumption here is that robotic friends or companions are fake in some way. So mm-hmm. like, why are they fake? Yep. Uh, and I think this is an excellent question to, to ask. So, and it's, it's one that I, I get challenged on. So to first to, to clarify my claim, it's not that all robots uh, necessarily and always are fake. I think if we get to the point where we've got something like data from Star Trek around, data can be a friend. Uh, but the current generation of uh, robots and anything I anticipate uh, arising in the near future looks like it's going to fail to be conscious. It's going to fail to have emotions and sort of attachments and projects and concerns in the ways that we think are significant for human agents. And so I think 
because friendship necessarily involves this kind of, you know, commitment to sharing lives and being responsive to each other's emotional states, if one half of the friendship can't perform that, then you just can't have a friendship sort of by definition. Yeah, okay. So I mean, I, I agree with that. I mean, you know, part of the thing here is just, has, so a lot of people would argue that well, a robot can't be your friend because a robot can't be conscious or can't have emotional states that we think are important for friendship because again going back to this aristotelian ideal there's it's all built around kind of mutuality and the sharing of life and experiences and that kind of thing or and em- empathy between friends so robot can't empathize therefore it can't be a friend therefore it, right. it's fake in some way I, I suppose like i'm resistant to that in at least insofar as it's framed as an argument against the very possibility of robotic friends because i think as you point out if we had something like data from star trek he could be your friend um now, I would kind of push that even further and say that he can be your friend even if it's true that he can't really experience all those things. So, I mean, Data famously mm-hmm. didn't have an emotional chip in mm-hmm. the early phases of Star Trek. He, he, he works on it a little later. Yeah. yeah. So, like, but he can still be a friend because he can do many of the things that a friend you would expect of a friend. At least that's my view. Right. So I think the, the way in which he uh, behaves is more important than what's going on on the inside. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. So here's an area where I'll push back. Um, and with kind of a, a thought experiment that's inspired by some Aristotelian discussions of friendship. Uh, and it, it goes like this. You know, if you have to choose between... Um, two sets of friends who will each sort of behave in all the appropriately friendly ways. Um, but one is a set of paid actors, uh, and the other, you know, cares about you and sort of, it goes through all the, the right, uh, conscious and emotional, uh, involvements that I just alluded to as being missing in the current generation of robots. Um, which would you choose? And when you ask most people, uh, they would prefer the people who care about them over the paid actors, even if in some sense the sort of contracts and uh, motivations might um, not only guarantee that the behaviors will be identical, but also protect you in many ways uh, against the kinds of exploitation that we worry about when we worry about false friends under ordinary circumstances. Does that sound approximately clear and or persuasive? So, yeah, a lot of people make this this kind of argument. And in one of your papers, you use the Truman Show as a yeah. illustration of it, which is um, kind of a useful cultural reference for people who are familiar with it. And like, I, so I would agree that you, you, I would prefer to be friends with somebody who's not paid to be my friend. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that that kind of analogy, that argument, always depends on on one critical assumption which I don't know will always hold true, which is that you know that they are paid in some way. So, ah. so that you, there's some kind of knowledge of insincerity that is undermining friendship. Right. So I have run this experiment with a number of my classes, which is not at all, you know, empirically robust data. But um, I do suspect if we sort of pull the um, Nozick experience machine inspired move and step, step back sort of a level and say, imagine you have to choose between two lives and you'll forget having made the choice. But, you know, you just sort of starting from a clean position, you have to choose between the life in which your friends are paid actors and the life in which your friends are um, motivated by the normal sorts of friendly concerns. If people still choose the life with the friends who care for them, um, even if they'll forget that decision once they've made the choice, that seems to me to highlight something important about friendship that's not just dependent on how friends behave towards you or what you get out of the relationship. And again, so I would argue that making making your your class choose it in that that way of framing <laughs> it is problematic because again, it's assuming that they they start from a position of knowledge of the difference. So I don't mm-hmm. know I don't know if it's possible for people to really 
effectively mentally project themselves into a world where they've forgotten it. Uh, Fair so, enough. Yeah. But I think day to day, it at least shows that we, we care about this distinction. Uh, and we, even though none of us can ever be fully certain of our friends' motivations, we can at least hope that they're they're motivated by the right sorts of, uh, you know, feelings and concerns. And that, again, seems to suggest that this isn't some just some abstract philosopher's fantasy, but that it, it's consistent with uh, a number of things we value about friendship day to day. Yeah, I, I agree it's not a philosopher's fantasy, and I agree that it's something that people do care about and state that they care about, but I, I suppose I would wonder whether they really do care about it when, or, or, <laughs> I, or put it another way, I'm not convinced that it's going to be a sufficient ground on which to differentiate between a sufficiently sophisticated robot and a human friend. Mm-hmm. And this is not just, uh, you know, back to the not a philosopher's fantasy, when it comes to friends for the elderly, uh, robot friends for the elderly, part of the issue here is when we talk about good enough to, for it to be difficult for us to distinguish, um, the us matters, right? Who, who, who it is that's being taken in by the illusion, you know, for uh, sort of geriatric patients who may be suffering from various kinds of cognitive impairments uh, in in an environment where they're already vulnerable to loneliness, it may not take all that much to convince them that they've got a robot friend. Um, there have been you know, some studies, for example, that just taking something like a, a robotic dog and putting clothes on it is enough to convince patients with advanced dementia that they're, they're talking to a person. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's so that like that, those kinds of cases are are tougher or they're they're more concerning but i can part of the concern there is driven by our perception of it vis-a-vis their perception of it so mm-hmm. I, I do I, I do think you state somewhere in one of your papers that we do also have to value the testimony of the people who are in these relationships as well right right and there there are um and here again i'm sort of uh, you know swimming upstream when it comes to the trend there's a there's a fair bit of worry about technology's ability to engage these social responses, even in people who are sort of in on the deception. And I'm not willing to go quite that far. I think there's there's value to triggering emotional responses, even when they're being triggered in, in some sense, false or fictional ways. So I think, you know, we can watch tearjerker movies or, you know, read comedic novels or interact with, with robots that make us feel, you know, warm and cared for. And that's that's all fine. But I don't think that we're engaging with real friends there. Uh, in a way that's consistent with the ways that we already value friendship. And so where I port this over to some of the discussions of uh, care for seniors uh, is just that sort of being honest about the goods that we're providing and making it clear to the people that we're working with what it is that they're getting. So somebody who thinks that they're being uh, given a friend and is merely being given something that makes them feel good seems at least potentially problematic. Yeah, so, I mean, being honest about the kinds of goods we're providing is, is an important factor here. And that, that kind of relates to another question which I wanted to ask, is that you know, when, if, you, if the argument is that robots are fake friends, does that depend a little bit on the type of friendship that we're interested in? So you know, I, I think I would agree with you that the current crop of robots and the foreseeable crop of robots for the next you know, 10, 15 years aren't going to be virtue friends. Mm-hmm. But, but could they just not be utility or pleasure friends? Uh, you know, could they be real versions of that? Or are they never going to be that kind of, even that lower form of friendship? Right, right. Um, I think answering that, so my, my initial inclination is to say, frustratingly, yes and no. You know, it depends on what you mean by utility friends. Uh, and there's some debate about this in, uh, you know, circling back around to some of the discussions of friendship about whether utility friends are merely the people we sort of, you know, have this instrumental calculation about, you know, if I, 
if I teach a class for you while you're at a conference, will you, you know, pick up my mail for me over the summer kind of tit for tat relationships or whether utility friendships can also have this component of, uh, care and concern that's just, um, confined to the context of finding each other mutually useful. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, So, yeah, yeah, so like Rosalind Hurst has has this, this paper, it's a, it's a very short one, but it's a, it's a fun read, uh, called Aristotle for women who love too much, uh, (laughs) where she sort of takes on the idea that any relationship, uh, that is, bounded by utility or pleasure, you know, like friends uh, you have at a particular work workplace that you just don't keep up with once you move on to a new job, uh, that those can't involve any caring or concern. She says, that's just a bad reading of human sociality. It's just about knowing the, the limits, so to speak, of how far that, that concern goes. Yeah, no, so you, that sounds plausible so, to me. Yeah. Right. So if you buy that richer account, then I think, uh, Robots are not going to be capable of being even utility friends, but in a looser sense of the term where, you know, your utility friends or your pleasure friends are just people um, or, you know, creatures with whom you interact that you find pleasant or useful, then it looks like robots could meet that criteria. And then we need to come back to, okay, why are virtue friends the ones we're interested in? And that to me is where, again, Aristotle's useful because he says, it's not bad to have these other kinds of relationships, but we need to recognize their limitations and keep an eye on the, the goal. Yeah, so I think we could probably agree that robots could provide utility and pleasure, but they may not count as utility friends or pleasure friends, uh, depending right. on, on your theory or understanding of it. But one thing I do want to ask, though, which is that you know there's a widespread use of companion animals in elder care facilities and hospice care facilities, mm-hmm. and these provide utility and or pleasure or, and reassurance to people. Uh, why are we why are we not concerned about the potential deception there that people might think that they're engaging with a, a, a human being? So, I, mean, I don't know if this actually happens, but like, is there, are there any equivalent fears with companion animals? So there, there definitely can be um, attachments to companion animals or even for that matter to, to inanimate objects. I was just talking to a clinician who specializes in end-of-life care and she said for for some of her patients, they, they have dolls that are, they're very attached to. And, you know, when you take the doll away, they're very distressed. And this actually becomes an important means of um, helping them to be comfortable uh, in sort of end stages. So I don't think we get away from the deception uh, or confusion concerns entirely just by minimizing or avoiding robot care. Um, I do think for at least some companion animals, the questions about consciousness and emotional states uh, aren't nearly so salient. So this is something I'm, I'm kind of interested in generally, is it seems like we have uh, far more grounds to think that, say, a dog or a cat is conscious and capable of you know, emotional responsiveness than your average robot. Uh, and yet the ethics of companion animal care is uh, also complicating and confusing in some ways that I think robot ethicists are going to need to think hard about. But I suspect that some of the, the concerns there are, um, are mitigated by the fact that they're at least capable of some of the the things that we think are important for friendship in ways that robots aren't. Yeah. I mean, I, I imagine that that's part of what's going on there and, and just maybe some kind of like status quo type bias as well, that we're, we're less exercised about the old thing that we're familiar with and mm-hmm. more concerned about the new thing. So, you know, we've been talking for quite a while. I think we should probably look towards wrapping up the conversation here. Um, maybe just one last question is like, you know, what, where do you see the debate going here about social robots and companions? I mean, is this really something that has to be teased out through empirical work or, you know, is the philosophical work that you've done and other people have done, is that over or is there more 
are there more philosophical insights to be mined, or is this just something that has to be played out now in an empirical realm? Oh, given the rise in artificial intelligence and, uh, you know, home assistance, you mentioned, you know, Siri and Alexa, um, I think we're just getting started on this. So I, I don't worry about running out of things to, to talk about anytime soon. And I, um, I do think it's important uh, to be empirically informed. This, this may have come out in some of the discussion already, but I think it's, it's possible to do good philosophy that is in contact with data about how people actually uh, behave and, you know, what they actually think about. But I think that there's a continuing role for philosophers in helping us to think through the kinds of complicated situations that arise when we have these person-like technologies that enter into already messy, you know, human relationships and human lives. Yeah, I mean, so I think that's probably a good uh, comment on which to end. Um, so I'd just like to thank you for, for joining me for this conversation. Oh, thank you. This has been terrific. Yeah, and people can find out more about your work online. You have a website, I think, um, I do, alexiselder.net. All right, so I'll, I'll put up a link to that and to the papers that you've written. Anyway, thank you again. Thank you.